0: welcome to the Mindset Growth Academy podcast. I'm your host, Emma Gibbs-Ung. Each show, I'm going to be using a combination of interviews with incredibly inspiring people from around the world who have achieved greatness, overcome adversity, and never given up, as well as solo episodes from me sharing my own journey as a leading mindset coach, helping to inspire, support, and guide you to create growth mindset so you can achieve success in all areas of your life. Are you ready to bring mindset to life and create success from the inside out? Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the Mindset Growth Academy podcast. Today, I'm joined by the amazing Ruth Cootsey, a coach, mentor, and author who works with her clients to help them build successful and profitable businesses. Today Ruth is sharing with us how she suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome at the age of 18 after experiencing a horrific car accident. She will be sharing with us the impact this has had on her life back then as well as today and how it has helped her to create the the successful life that she now has. So hi
1: Ruth. Hi Emma, great to be here.
0: Great to have you here, thank you so much. Oh, Yeah, hello, sorry, I think you were going to go, I was
1: going to go. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: No, it's a pleasure. So much that I want to talk to you about um, today. Obviously, I touched um, on the intro, not only are you um, a very successful coach, mentor and author of a book Mm -hmm. that you released last year, but you also have experienced post-traumatic stress syndrome and having experienced it myself, um, I know the impact that this has on not just your life, but on the lives of your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is often undiagnosed, certainly for, for me it was for a number of years, but it can have such an impact on your emotional and your physical state. And so I'd love for you, if, if you don't mind, to just talk a little bit about sort of the aftermath of that horrific car accident and what led
1: you to being
0: diagnosed with PTSD.
1: So the diagnosis didn't happen, um, for a long time actually afterwards. So I think after it happened, I was definitely in a state of shock. Um, and I was numb and I actually have a period of time where I don't have any memories because I've blocked them out. And I was like, recently I was kind of thinking about it and thinking about, did I want to look like, you know, go back and look at those memories, but I I feel like it's better not to, um, but I was getting a lot of flashbacks. So probably up until about three years ago, I was still experiencing regular flashbacks of what happened. Um, and I would say that it's, it's not, I think that people expect PTSD to follow a set pattern, but it's not, it's really dependent on you. And I realized that PTSD is kind of the umbrella that lots and lots of things, and it wasn't, I literally, I remember going on the NHS website about five years ago and looking at the description was like oh my gosh it's i've got that and that and that and that, and it all made sense but at the time i didn't realize that at the time i definitely like had like you know where i had dreams where i where i reenacted what happened yeah. um and that was really traumatic and it, and i was in a position which i look back on was i was really depressed um but I felt that I didn't deserve to be depressed because I had survivor guilt as well. So I felt like I couldn't um, really ask for help. And I think because I could see how traumatized my parents were and my friends were, I felt that like, I needed to kind of get on with it. I definitely had that like British, like, let's just keep going. Um, Which now I think I would have asked for help, but obviously hindsight is an amazing thing. So I did have some counselling straight away afterwards. And I remember really clearly, I remember being in my mum and dad's house, being in our sitting room and the woman saying to me, you'll never get over this. Right. And I can I can still hear her words. I can still remember what she looked like. And and I was like, well, how, like, if you're telling me now at 18, I'm never going to get over this. What am I meant to do with that? How am I meant, how is that meant to impact my life? And I think that so between I would say it's probably between about ages 18 and probably into my early 30s I definitely was experiencing symptoms that was there were different severity I mean at the beginning I just wanted to get away so I actually moved to Australia I didn't want I didn't want people to know what happened and I was always really paranoid that people would know what happened um so I avoided people I avoided talking about where I was from I definitely like Cut ties with most people from where I was from because I felt like that—that that was a reminder, and I also felt like judged. And now we're doing all the work. I know I know that the judgment was completely on me. Um, yeah, and, and I remember sitting there looking at the description. I was like, oh my gosh, I did that. I never realised to to the extent where. So where I went to university, I went to Leeds University, and loads of people from my town went there. And I remember like seeing people I knew like, at university or out and I would completely like turn around or walk the other way or like turn my face. So not to not to speak to them. And that's completely not me. Mm. And it was because I was so scared. I was like I, I was living in a state where I was constantly anxious that people were going to say something and people were going to out my secret and that everyone was going to hate me. That's how I felt. So it made me like quite isolated. Um, even though outwardly I didn't seem isolated, I didn't talk about it to anyone. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to
0: that. I went to Australia to escape mine. I oh, did you? <laughs> must
1: be the place to go. <laughs> Maybe we were there at the same time. But, but unfortunately, when, when I was there, I don't know about you, you. You can't actually escape it by moving to the other side of the world. Um, yeah, I mean, there. I
0: found it wasn't real. Um, I went there and and traveled and had the best best year of my life, as I say, in the fact it was pure escapism. So it wasn't normal. Um, You weren't seeing the same people. People didn't know who you were, which is a perfect environment to be in when you're trying to escape that sort of thing. Yes. And and not necessarily face up to to, uh, what had gone on before you left. Um, And it was... I see it now almost as that little bubble and then you come home and it's like, Oh God, actually it was, what happened was real and now I've got to face it. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean that's a lot of emotions to be carrying around with you. Um, um, Obviously you mentioned that when you, was it when you were in hospital and someone said you would never get over this?
1: No, that was, so I had a counsellor afterwards so I, Like, I can't remember the detail. I'm not sure. I think, and this may be wrong, so if anyone's listening to me and tells me it doesn't happen, maybe it happened, like, over 20 years ago. But I think that my solicitors, the solicitor's really nice, and I think that she... So I remember her coming to the house, and I think that either her or the police, like, said, this lady's really good, and referred me to her. So it was some kind of recommendation from somebody kind of involved either the solicitor or the police who said she's really good I mean the like the solicitor and police were amazing um everybody that I dealt with was but I think I think that choice of words and it, okay. it's always interesting what we remember
0: Yeah,
1: because I don't remember anything else that she said and you know how may Angelou says we remember how people make us feel mm-hmm. she made me feel like I don't know I, I felt like I I can't ever get over this. I felt like it was going to be around my neck forever when she said that, which I'm sure I think on reflection, when I look back and remember that she she was probably saying like, this is a really big thing for you and I'm going to help you get over it. But you might, you know, it's the tone of voice, but it's always how we take it. And I took it at that time, like you're never going to get over it. And after that, I refused to see her, which obviously again was probably not the best thing to do but I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. And I think there's no handbook for looking at this stuff. It's completely out of, you know, you don't expect this to happen. You don't, you don't think that this is going to happen to you. And I think that I, I did what I thought was best. Um, And a lot of that was shutting out emotions. That, that was how I felt that I could continue. Totally.
0: And you know, it's, that statement alone just shows the power that words have on us, mm. words from ourselves or from other people. Um, and often, not necessarily, she probably had no intention whatsoever of ever saying that to, to cause this emotion with you, but words are strong. Yes. Certainly, when you are in that sense of vulnerability or um, turmoil, then like you've got so much going on you can't process things and you're feeling guilty and all of that sort of stuff and then it just takes one comment or one you know one person that can then define that you know, Yeah. obviously she certainly didn't mean that but it has an impact on you that you said you know that that kind of made you feel even more scared or well, like you know how am I actually going to get over this so talk me through sort of what that looked like for you over the next few months in order to process what happened, heal yourself, mm. and, um, grieve yourself. and um, you know, we all know that grieving and healing and, and everything is very individual, but like you said, there isn't a rule book at all for this sort of stuff. So what was Ruth's way of dealing with this process?
1: Well it's probably a way that I would not recommend to anyone listening. So I I definitely shut off from emotions. I didn't really speak to anybody about it um and i started to drink more heavily so that was that was my that was my coping mechanism that i would i would drink i would drink more um i mean i wasn't Mommy, I need a okay ask auntie Jen. no it was okay ask her to get the key because i'm doing a thing no, okay like you, <laughs> I can't, darling. Get Auntie Genty. And then your child comes in. And then you
0: uh, go, yeah, but this is real. This is real. This is real. <laughs> right. this is real. She can't hear what
1: I'm saying, luckily, because yeah. she's in the other room. You oh, needed a sharpener. So, so, um, so, yeah, I was. So I, I definitely drank before. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, that was my coping mechanism, and interestingly, or probably not interestingly, my dad was an alcoholic. So I probably, not even probably, I grew up with seeing that was the way that you could, you know, if you were upset, you drank. So it was kind of like, even though I don't even remember, again, that so much, it was definitely like I was drinking more. That was my way. Drinking and also um, going between like either not eating or like binging like those are my ways of coping that was my way of controlling it because i couldn't control it i literally couldn't control my mind and it really scared me because before then like i was, you know before then i was like a regular teenager so obviously i wasn't you know i sometimes got drunk or something but but then it was like the idea i really felt i wanted to control myself but i didn't feel in control and so for me actually losing control by being drunk was a safer space to be than to be in my head. Um, Yeah. So I don't recommend that. And I think that pattern of using alcohol to numb my emotions, that was definitely something that I, that I, that's how I, that's how I functioned. That is how I functioned. I thought if I'm feeling like this, I need to, I need to drink. And I need to like, you know, drink a bottle of wine and, and then I'll forget. And if I forget, then I'm safe. So yeah. that, was, that was my coping mechanism, which now is not something I would recommend. I would, not, I would hope my daughters did, wouldn't do it. But at the time, that was all I knew.
0: And do you know what? You know, the thing is, I, I feel like I'm sat here listening to my twins speak. Because <laughs> oh, I, I drank and then I um, controlled food. Because I felt so out of control with everything else that it was like I need to control something, and the alcohol, as you said, um, gave you escapism and blocked stuff out, and also helped me to sleep um, and be someone slightly different to this person that was dealing with all of the the rubbish that was going on. That I think you know, there, there is no judgment on that. So many people I know. Have turned to some substance when it comes to to dealing with um the aftermath of life defining events and mm. and all of that sort of stuff, but it's more sort of i suppose you can't do that forever, and so you know well, what was the turning point for you where you were a bit like actually I'm using drink a bit too much, um something needs to change, was it like an overnight type of realization not an overnight um process or
1: was it a gradual i think it was a gradual because so i was traveling for two years and then i came back i went to university for three years i went traveling again i worked in sales and recruitment and all of these were places where people drank so it didn't seem that abnormal it didn't seem like weird Um, but then i started I remember really clearly like losing a friend over it. And then I remember another friend writing me a letter. She's still a very good friend of mine. The the person I lost isn't writing me a letter.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I don't have that letter, but I I remember when people used to speak to me and say like, I'm worried about you. I'd always be like, why are you worried about me? But then this started to, to ring home and it didn't, I didn't change overnight, but I started to, realized that it was a problem and yeah you know, there was it was hiding a problem underneath and so I then so that that's kind of around the time that I changed from working in recruitment to, to moving to working in teaching um, and I started to get I started to have CBT which made a massive difference because I started to give myself coping strategies um, and I started to decrease the amount I drank And I started to talk. And I think that for me was the big thing. I started to talk to people. Um, Interestingly, one of those people would definitely be my assistant, who's next door, my daughter at the moment. But actually I started to talk to people that didn't know and have those conversations and and realize that I wasn't alone um, and start to cope with those feelings. I, I would say that that kind of numbing, the alcohol numbing, I would say that I still have that fear that that's always in me. I still have this fear that if something went wrong, that I could become that person that that is reliant on alcohol. But luckily, you know, I have two children now, so I have a bigger reason. And when I became pregnant five years ago, that, I mean, that was like the defining moment that you're like, well, I can't, I can't be this person when I've got kids. Yeah. You know, it, it sounds really trite. So I know that you listen to loads of people and they say, well, having kids saved me. Well, no, you save yourself. You make that decision. But I mean, before then I was, it was, it would be very, especially during, you know, I, I could hold it together really well during the week. I could hold it together for weeks on end. Sometimes I would have a really hard time, but I was generally, you know, for a few years before that, I was okay. And that's probably why I managed to meet my husband because before then, I was I was, so, I was so kind of dishonest with myself and I was so not really dealing with things. It was very difficult for me to have relationships. I did have relationships, but the relationships were never great because I wasn't being open and I wasn't being true to myself. So I was attracting people who were pretty similar to me. Yeah. So like two dysfunctional people together mm-hmm. is never going to end well
0: no (laughs) (laughs) it's never that
1: that's that's no fairy tale
0: no no 100% not and you know it's this honest sort of approach where you're saying it's a gradual thing because these things are gradual Mm. but sometimes people can have that moment of clarity where they're like you know what actually i need to make this this choice to to change what I'm interested what made you suddenly decide to go with CBT was that something that was offered to you had you
1: researched it so my first degree was in business and psychology and I continued to study psychology basically because I wanted to know why the hell I was so swear word up (laughs) um so I I began I've been studying psychology since I was 20 and I think there was a lot of research and evidence So at that time when I had CBT, I didn't really realize that because of all my symptoms, it was more that I had PTSD. I thought I was suffering from depression and CBT is one of the the best things that you can do for depression. So when you look at the studies um, that they've done, it was, it was a top thing to do. I mean, I had, I had tried being on like SSRIs, like Prozac, Prozac and SSRI, um, serotonin selective, Reuptake inhibitors, so you can tell that I'm a geek. Um, but I was really they made me more anxious because then I was anxious that I was going to be on them forever, yeah. Um, so I was like, I know CBT works and I know it's 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 like evidence based, so that's why I went with it. And my CBT therapist was called Peter Stringfellow, which was very interesting.
0: <laughs> it, wasn't the it wasn't
1: the Peter Stringfellow, no.
0: Well, that's good because God knows what might have come out from that one. Oh, that would have
1: been very weird.
0: <laughs> but how, um, how quickly did you start to notice um, a shift from, with the CBT, but also just if I can go back, because in my head I've just come up with something. Mm. When I said about making that change for me, it started with awareness. So, like you were, you were starting, people were coming to you, which is always good because having a support network around you is vital, but actually is, is quite hard for others around you to feel comfortable enough to yes. kind of say what's going on because when you're in this turmoil, um, they never know which person they're going to get, whether you'd cry or bite their head off or punch mm. and say, you know, what you're talking about, I'm fine. Um, so that obviously is a real strength, having supportive people. Yep. Around you. But then the awareness piece, because for me, like awareness is so key in, in so much, of what we do. And, and we often do it subconsciously um but you were gradually starting almost like the fog was starting to lift perhaps and so with these people kind of saying are you okay you're like mm, am I okay is that right is that or is that just- yeah
1: that's definitely right and I think I was starting to notice as well so there were like there were a few situations where I was like Yeah, that really wasn't cool. And I I was starting to notice it probably. And then people coming to me. And if I'm honest, people have come to me like over the years quite a lot, but I wasn't in a place to listen. I was like, I'm okay. I'm fine. And I definitely was a bit of that Jekyll and Hyde character. And even like my, my brother reflected it recently. He's like, you were so like, you're so different to how you were. And he said, you're like good Ruth. You're like the Ruth that everyone wanted to hang out with. You, like he said, you're like that the whole time, but we didn't used to know what we we're going to get. Exactly what he said. We, I, I would never know what you're going to get. And he's like, now, like all of my friends, everyone would come to you for advice. Like now you're like, but, but you, it, it used to be that you could get that Ruth or you could get the Ruth that would be in denial or that it would be really, giant, you know, or he'd be, be like dancing on tables and like, okay. you never knew which one you'd get. Yeah. And that was because I was in turmoil. But it must have been, you know, I think those people that stood, were around me, luckily saw who I really was, yeah. even when I didn't see it, even when I didn't acknowledge it, even when I didn't yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it was safer to be the roof dancing on tables than the roof saying, I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and
0: then you get used to it, don't you? Um, like it suddenly becomes the new norm. Like with any of these things, we, we can talk about, and we, you know, we're going to be talking about your journey to managing it because yeah. it's something that will all, always stay with you, but yeah. you manage it in a way. But you get, you go through ways of managing it the wrong way, but you, but the timing has to be right. Like you said, you know, other people spoke to you, but you probably weren't hearing it in the way that you needed to hear it. Yeah. It just wasn't right, but it, because, you go into that autopilot and we all do it, you know, in some form of protection, coping mechanism. And yeah, I'm sure I can sort myself out, but I'm managing to hold it together. haha, not really, but I think I am. Um, And so you just kind of get on with it. Um, And obviously the barriers start to come down. Mm. So going back to the the CBT, um, how long were you working with someone um, before you started to feel the positive effects of this?
1: I was working with someone um, for the first round. It was about six to eight weeks when I really saw a difference. Now that was when I had just, so I just moved back to, it must be about 14, 15 years ago now. I just moved back to London. I trained for my, um, I trained for my teach training in Brighton, I just moved back to London, and I I think then it was like, you know, in recruitment and sales, you can be, you can turn up to work hung, hungover every day, and no one really cares as long as you're hitting your targets.
0: Mm.
1: When you're looking after a class of thirty young people, you cannot turn up to work smelling of booze every day because you'll lose your job. Yeah. so I think that, that that was kind of another thing that I was like I need to sort this because if I don't sort this it's, it's going to be my career so I think it, it probably was about six to eight weeks that I really started to see a difference um and then I thought I was okay mm-hmm. um but I've I've gone back for CBT over the years um a few times I've also had hypnotherapy um and lots of different types of th- types of therapy and different things. You know, I, I did timeline therapy last year. Um, I've had N L P therapy. So I've I've done lots of different things because the more that I did and also the more that I learned. So if I think the first time when I went and did CBT, I then studied CBT. Mm. I then studied all of these things. Because I was so overwhelmed, I was like, what you know, what is going on in my mind? So the more I studied and the more I learned, the more I did myself because I recognized, "Mm, still think there's something there. Actually, I want to, I want, I don't want to feel like this anymore. So I think it became like that awareness that things weren't okay, getting some help and then building on that awareness. Actually, things could be really good and I could live a great life and I could feel happy because from the outside, You know, when I left university, I got a good job. I was earning lots of money. I was getting, you know, I had all of that stuff. I had designer clothes, but it was always what was on the inside. And I think that for me, it was starting to recognize that it didn't matter what the outside looked like. Because if the inside wasn't sorted, you know, I could have all the champagne and taxis and Marc Jacobs shoes in the world. And I still would be feeling like sugar. yeah Yeah, i didn't swear again (laughs) wow thank you (laughs) it's
0: it's so true though and this is the thing that i find we are an evolving process Mm. there is no such thing as fixed or perfect and i like i firmly believe that like again with timing you get to level like I my um, recovery started on a level and you have to almost process that level uh. to understand who you are at that level and then when you're there that's when you feel strong enough to unravel the next level um, and 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 then you keep going and you keep going same within business same within life every time you move to that next level or next stage it will trigger something and i think you know some people try and rush um healing or treatment uh, or don't give it long enough for it to show the full benefits so they'll get to that certain level um and they'll think that that is their level and it's not enough Um, rather than seeing it actually this is a continued evolving process like we live in a world that evolves all the time um, and there is no right or wrong. There is no fixed or perfect. It is just how how much you want to keep uh, improving yourself and creating that, that happiness or that lighter way of living that isn't kind of burdened with all these emotions. Yeah. Um, but it takes time, right? Like you can't go from A to B and think, wow, I'm fixed. Like you have to manage Especially, you know, for you, when you were um, coping with all of those emotions that trigger different behaviours, different thoughts, Hmm. um, different um, actions, to then have some understanding of what that looks like. You then have to now become that Ruth. Yeah. Before you can then become the
1: Ruth that you are today. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I think that it's all... Like everyone says, success is an inside job, and all. But it really is like you have to do like all of these things, and it is like every time you think, "Hmm, I've got that," you realize there's something else. Yeah. And I actually think, in a way, that's that's really exciting because you're not, you're not, you're never a finished product. And I always say, if anyone tells me they are, I back away very quickly because even though. Many people listening to this might not have had mental health issues. They hopefully haven't gone through like PTSD like we have, you know, abusing alcohol, abusing their bodies, whatever. But they can recognize that actually they can be better and we can all be better and we can all deal with things better. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to feel emotions, but I definitely, you know, like the way that I deal with things now compared to even the way I dealt with things a year ago is So much better, like I can detach from things that are unhelpful. And I used to, in the online world, you'll know about this, there's so much, um, it can be quite a toxic place. And I used to take it so personally, Mm. but actually, it's not personal. I think that again, that's work that you do, it's all work that we do on ourselves the whole time.
0: Totally, totally. I just had a really good question that came in my head, and it's it sticks away <laughs> very annoying but um yeah you know it it is a process and the, oh this is this is what I want to say that the thing that I see a lot with with people with clients and um, with with people that have gone through hard experiences and mm. hard experiences are anything that have hit you on an, a deep emotional level is that they they, t- they sometimes stop at that first level because they don't believe that they are worthy of getting to the next level. Mm. Um, and we all have these limiting beliefs. And um, as you know, my mission is really to reduce stigmas that come of this, so to reduce that judgment and to know that your past doesn't define your future. But what what was it with you that made you think, you know, I've got to this level, I want more. Um, and how did you cope with the limiting beliefs that came with that? Because with every level there are, but certainly from my point of view, my biggest one was about being worthy um, and deserving um, success. Mm. And, and, and feeling that I wasn't damaged so that I could, I could be up there with, with everybody else. Um, so that's kind of what I then work on. What what were your limiting beliefs? And then how did you overcome them to get to that next level? Because I think it would really help a lot of yeah. people to, to understand that.
1: I mean, I definitely had, I'm not good enough. That was like, uh, that, and that was before. I mean, that was, I, I remember that from when I was a, a little girl. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And the other one that I had is like, along with I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough. Because to be successful, you have to be pretty. Mm. And that was definitely part of my dialogue I had going on. I think that the I'm not pretty one, I kind of got over more quickly because I start, what I started to do there is I started to look at people that, that I wanted to be like. And this was especially within education. And I was really lucky that I had some really great mentors and I'm sure they won't find me saying they were not that classic pretty. They were kick-ass. They were strong women. So having those people as mentors really helped me to realize to, to to think, okay, you don't have to look a certain way to be successful. I don't. I've got no idea where that came from. Probably magazines or something when I was growing up. But the I'm not good enough thing. I really started to look at what I had achieved, and I started to to really look at so i did it from the client type of view of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation so i knew that if i was motivated by something internally i was more likely to do it yeah and i did like quite quite a lot of study on that um and like carl lewis is my favorite example like he was extrinsically motivated but then he got in- intrinsic motivation he's an olympic athlete and he used to hold the record for 100 meters and long jump so i i, I looked at a lot of research and then i started to look at okay what have i achieved and a massive turning point for me was in 2010 2010 yeah so nine years ago when i applied to be on this um leadership development program for people who are becoming head teachers and that was like a massive step up um and i think for me to do that i kind of something inside me said why not why not you and I went for it I went for that really scary thing now I didn't feel that I was ever going to get that but I went for it and I did get it and then I got a coach and I got a mentor through that and through that process I really started to identify those things that were limiting me even more under the surface so you know I'm not good enough kept coming up I kept looking at evidence why why I was I'm not going to say that I still don't feel that sometimes but equally I have a stronger dialogue of like okay this is why I am good enough this is what I have achieved these are the things that I have done so I've been able to change that narrative but that's practice that is literally like when I hear that going in my head you're not good enough I I stop now I might even write things down or I say something or I count I, I do whatever I can to get that thought out of my head. Yeah. Re- like, I tell you what, also massively helped me. When I did hypnobirthing for yeah. the birth of my first daughter, I continued to do, like, to listen to those things. So I felt they really helped me. So I never would say that I do meditation that much, but actually, I was doing it all that time. And that really helped me, which is really interesting because I would never have done med- meditation because it was like for a purpose i thought i could do it and now i do meditation and i listen to hypnosis
0: totally i think that that is the thing you know i work with my clients about revisiting what uh, wow moments and wow moments change for everybody but we all have them regardless of what we've gone through where you Mm. you actually go do you know what that i was in total flow that exceeded my expectations. It could be in your personal um, life, you know, with relationships, or the conversation you've had with someone to, to, to your business, but we've all got, we've got it in us. And I think that's the thing is that sometimes we forget to, to tap into who we are as people. And so we just focus on our flaws rather than our strengths. Mm-hmm. And it's our strengths that got us to where we are today. Um, and mm-hmm. it's reminding ourselves of that. Um, and I love what you just said about meditation because meditation, again, is something that everyone speaks about or you, you hear of some form. Mm-hmm. But there's quite um, a lot of um, preconceived ideas about it or misunderstandings about it and that it's you know it's just purely woo-woo and you've got to spend hours doing it and all of that sort of stuff. But it's really about taking these, these resources and personalizing them. So like you obviously were first triggered by that with your hypnobirthing and then recognize the benefits that it had and so you continued for me i'm not a visual person so i started kind of just talking to myself and now i just do little mini meditations in the shower like i don't sit there and and spend 10 minutes 20 minutes it's it just works for me and and that's Mm -hmm. that's my way of kind of connecting um but it is so important with all of this is that we have everything in us to be successful. The only person that stops us are the limitations that we put on ourselves. And they, they are the ones like, you know, you've just said, I'm not good enough. Um, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not worthy. You know, I'm dirty or, you know, whatever. Um, Mm. and it's, it's knowing how they feature in our lives, isn't it? And then recognizing, where they come from. And that, that comes from getting honest. But let's be honest, if you want to change your life, you've got to get honest. Yes. Um, and seeing making your goals bigger than your fears.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. Having those big goals. And actually, it's also about going back to your why. Like, why are you doing anything? Like, I had a really clear why when I was working in recruitment and sales. I was doing it because I was extrinsically driven, I was driven by money. But I really quickly realized that that wasn't enough for me and that that wasn't enough to make me push because again, money is extrinsic. So it, it's not something that intrinsically will motivate you. And then when I worked in education, obviously it was about you know making the world a better place and helping people. And now in my job, that, that feeling that I'm actually changing lives is what keeps me going rather than anything extrinsic and i think that if your why is powerful and big then that can really help you overcome those beliefs because if your purpose is bigger than your fears like your goals and your purpose then you're going to overcome them and you're going to do the work because you're going to be driven to but if you're doing something for the sake of it is it's a lot more difficult yeah totally
0: and i think you know we are in whether you're in sales or in in society right there's a lot of pressure on people to make lots of money and mm. so whenever you speak to people about their goals it's money orientated now I'm not saying that that shouldn't be the case because we all have goals but like you have just said you know when you tapped into intrinsically what felt right for you and what you wanted to do in order to feel um, better calmer within yourself than from the the chaos of emotions that you're yeah. dealing with that is when it really like took you to that next level not just your your happiness but your relationship with your husband your relationship with your kids and your mm-hmm. business and i think it's the missing pieces that we so often look for outside influences to provide us with the answers because it's easy that way because that's taking responsibility think? and it, you know it is hard to um better yourself but the rewards that come with that far outweigh anything um but it's having that that strength i suppose or that why to tap into that intrinsic connection and say do you know what this feels right for me
1: Um, Mm. and interestingly i'm smiling because i don't set financial targets for myself anymore my targets are all based on my clients yeah because i felt like that financial time, it doesn't really mean anything to me. Yeah, yeah 10K k months, great. Like 50K k months, brilliant, amazing. What does that actually mean? Mm. It's not like you're lying in a bath of the money. And I think the online world can be so driven by these figures and this money. But if you're not feeling it, why are you doing it?
0: Mm. Totally, totally. I mean, you, you've spoken about three different careers, um, mm obviously with the sales and the recruitment, then teaching, what, pivot, what made you pivot from teaching into, into the um, coaching industry? Was that that you would now built yourself up and so you were intrinsically in, in more alignment with who you wanted to be?
1: Uh, so I studied psychology and business at university 21 years ago. So I always knew that I wanted to, to bring them both together. And actually I did use them a bit in recruitment and I remember this is so like, I remember people were doing like psychometric tests, like MBTI and stuff. And I really wanted to do that. But I didn't have the confidence. So they were doing coaching stuff. And I wanted to do that, but I didn't have the confidence to do it. And then through teaching, I got, I got coaching and then I did, I, I did leadership coaching. I did like a course in it and I coached, I brought in stuff in my school and um, in other schools and coach senior leaders across the UK, and I realised that, that was what I loved. Like I loved the coaching, and even even when you're teaching like sixth form, a lot of it is is coaching style. You don't give people the answers. Um, so I realised that my passion was coaching. My passion wasn't teaching. My passion was definitely not education or politics um, or social care, which is basically what my job was becoming. Um, even though I really cared about the children, so. I knew that I wanted to be a coach. And interestingly, I knew I wanted to be a coach on my first day when I was on this leadership coaching program. We went up to Nottingham for like the whole summer. I think we did like six, three weekends and like two weeks out or four weekends um, to have this intense leadership coaching. And my first weekend there, I knew I wanted to be the person delivering the leadership coaching, not the head teacher. But it took me quite a long time to work out how I was going to do that in a way that worked for me because I didn't want to stay in education either so that was kind of it was there but it was like how do I make it work
0: yeah so how did you make it work
1: um so I started off doing lots I started off just coaching well so I retrained Mm -hmm. so I did some coaching qualifications NLP qualifications um and then I I just, well, three years ago, I just sent out an email. I, I was doing it pro bono and I was doing lots of leadership coaching, coaching, like youth coaching at work as well. And then I just sent out an email and I said, who do you know who might want some coaching? And I was doing lots of kind of confidence coaching and career coaching. And then through that, I kept having people coming to me who want to start their businesses. And I realized, again, my degrees in business. I've been teaching people to, how to set up businesses for years i would had businesses in the past so it was really obvious that that's what I needed to do But I had lots of imposter syndrome around it I thought to be a business coach I need to I didn't actually start being a business coach 100% until i would made like my old salary doing career coaching so I wanted to prove that I knew how to work a business first um, I didn't think that I had enough experience in business Uh, despite, you know, having all the recruitment and sales experience, despite having my own businesses in the past, I didn't feel that I did because I had imposter syndrome. I didn't feel good enough. And I was judging myself and I'm smiling because we both know people set up and say they're a business coach with no qualifications, no experience, nothing. But for me, I, I really felt that I needed to go on that journey. I needed to have a successful coaching business first. I needed to acknowledge that that's what i that's what i wanted to do so what the signs were like people kept coming to me and they kept getting results and it's like and i don't really enjoy no insight of anyone anyone's listening but the career coaching i found difficult because like people wanted you to tell them what to do and it's like i don't know what you should do for the rest of your life like that's up to you like i found it more difficult because i i got more frustrated with people yeah We're sorry if you're one of my clients then
0: yeah but you needed to go through that to get to work.
1: yeah a hundred percent i did uh
0: you know so your journey has has been one that has well it's quite remarkable but has been very much driven by your mindset and learning all the different things. Um, what are your go-to mindset rituals that you have that keep you focused calm And
1: confident. Do you know, like the best thing that I think anyone can do for their mindset is exercise. Mm. And this is like, I see such a difference. Exercise. I have to exercise every single day. That doesn't mean I'm running a marathon every day, but I have to do something. I have to drink water. I have to get enough sleep. Like sleep is a massive trigger for me. And then for me, it's about continual learning. So reading, podcasts, YouTube videos, all of those are really important, and I have them in my like mapped into my week. And then it's about having time out, like not working the whole time, not having screens the whole time, doing things that I really enjoy. And then my little things that I do is I do like my gratitude journal every night, I do that as a minimum. So, like, I write five things that I'm grateful for. That's it, five minutes. Yeah, I find that when I have longer things, I don't do it. Yeah, and like you. Like I, I do some kind of silence every day. Sometimes that's a meditation. Sometimes it's sitting on my sofa, staring into space with a cup of tea, not doing anything. Mm. I don't have like these elaborate rituals. I mean, I was trying to get up at five o'clock in the morning every day. It was a disaster. I was exhausted. By this time I was like, you know, on the floor. So I think we all think that mindset is this like this massive thing. Actually, what I've learned and what I've really learned over the last three years when I've had my own business, it's about listening to yourself. Number one, if you're tired, sleep. If you're stressed, take a break. Go outside. Speak to a friend. You know, you've got all those things there already. It's not a new thing. Like, mindset isn't this new thing. It's always been there. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: And in my business, I definitely... I definitely would have those, like, I'd look at messages. So I've got a little folder on my laptop and I look at things that people have, t- have sent me if I'm feeling a bit low about that. Yeah, love
0: that. Do you know, what you just said is so true. And I've, I was guilty of, of all of the above just a couple of weeks ago where I just had reached burn, burnout emotionally. Mm. Emotion, emotionally and physically, I was on different pages. I wasn't connected. I wasn't um, functioning And it just, it does knock you. And um, I did a podcast last week actually about how you need to prepare your mind and your body for success. Mm. Mm. Exercise for me is vital. It changes me straight away. Um, If I don't exercise, I'm twitchy. Um, Not that, like you say, not that you have to run a marathon. I just do half an hour, 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, But it's finding what's right for you and not making it complicated. Yes,
1: yes not making it complicated because if it's complicated you won't do it it's another excuse
0: yeah exactly awesome um do you have a mindset mantra that you live by
1: i am good enough yeah, yeah i'm good enough so i have little post-it notes and yeah i'm good enough and i say it to the girl my my i've got two daughters i said to them the whole time as well yeah we're good enough i'm good enough so that's that is kind of my go-to when i'm not i'll be like i'm good enough that's, that's where I go.
0: Yeah, definitely. Ruth, it's been amazing. Like your knowledge in, in the coaching business anyway is phenomenal. Um, but just hearing the the other side, the more um deeper, intimate side of you is is really nice for me. Like I've known you for a while, but to to understand that because it's so important for us to build awareness and to allow people to recognise that um social media isn't always what it's made out to be. And actually, if you have gone through hard stuff, you're not alone. And there are a yeah. lot of people who haven't walked in your shoes but have an understanding of that emotion and those triggers in more ways than you perhaps realize. And that yeah. there's always light at the end of the tunnel, but to take it one step at a time and, and to not give up. And so I, I love your honesty for, for sharing that side of you. Um, it's been really insightful and um it's been lovely talking to you so thank you very much
1: you too thank you uh
0: if anyone wants to follow you um ruth where can they find you
1: (laughs) so funny jessica's back
0: Uh, Um,
1: they can find me um it's I'm the only Ruth Kudsey, so it's K-U-D-Z-I. It's Um I've got a big group called the Rebel Collective, and my lovely little daughter, who's four, has come to say hello, but she's going to go back. Mummy, yeah? this would be like peanut butter and apple. Yeah, Sophia would love peanut butter and apple, darling.
0: I would love Yeah,
1: peanut, p- peanut butter and apple is a favourite in our house.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. Yes
1: yeah so the rebel collective but ruth could on instagram twitter and facebook although it's ruth could too if you have a look at the facebook page
0: and you've got a membership site as well that people yeah, can, yeah.
1: they
0: can knock into yeah. awesome thank you so much it's been lovely speaking to you and i really appreciate it thank you